This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and this episode was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2020. It's called The End of America and features the excellent historian and journalist Jill LaPaule in conversation with New York Times Australia correspondent Damien Cave. And it was introduced by me. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to Antidote. It's not a bad place to get out of the heat today, I reckon. So if you feel like hanging around, you are more than welcome. But I'm here to introduce a session about the state of America today. And it feels appropriate to be doing that this weekend because it's the Thanksgiving weekend in America, which, while not an entirely unproblematic holiday, is generally celebrated as a symbol of American togetherness and gratitude and family. But at its core, I suppose that Thanksgiving is also about the national myths that we build to describe our own character and our foundations and the stories we, we create and that we tell each other that in turn create our sense of culture and identity in all cultures, not just America. But if 2020 has shown us anything, it's how fragile those myths and stories can be. So we're here to talk about what has been and continues to be an extraordinarily massive, tragic, but possibly transformative year in American history. The inequalities that were laid bare by the pandemic, uh, the pandemic crisis and continue to be, um, to be exposed. The Black Lives Matter resurgence and the sense of community power that that has brought out. And then the election, I mean, I guess at least the behaviour of the outgoing administration has been consistent, but um, it's going to be like like everybody is watching and I think still the world is on some kind of tender hooks as to what might happen over the next few weeks before the transition. So is the United States entering a new chapter or are the problems simply too entrenched? And to talk about this today, I'm incredibly pleased to welcome two people who are uniquely positioned to bring this to an Australian audience. First up, Jill Lepore is joining us from her cabin in the remote Vermont where she's holidaying with her family and four Great Danes, um, who you may or may not be able to hear in the background. But Jill is an historian at Harvard University. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine and she's the author of many books, including These Truths, A History of the United States and This America, The Case for the Nation. And she is being uh, interviewed today, or, or the discussion today is being led by Damien Cave, who is the bureau chief here in Sydney of the New York Times Australian Bureau, which is based in Bondi. And although technically American still, I think that we're doing our best here to turn Damien into an Australian and to claim him as our own. I, uh, his children are in nippers. I don't know if you can see from the audience, but he is wearing R.M. Williams boots. So he is practically one of us. So I'm going to hand over to Damien now, but if you could give Damien and Jill a hugely warm welcome and enjoy the session. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Edwina. Um, thank you all of you for coming and those who are watching at home. Um, this is, I'm sure, a larger audience than you can, any of you can possibly see altogether. Um, just to give you a sense of how this will go, Jill and I will chat for about 40 minutes and then we'll take questions from the online audience and the, I guess, studio or theater audience. And you'll have an app, Slido, which will help you ask those questions, and you can also vote the questions up and down. Um, if you're tweeting about this, the hashtag is antidote. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Jill, uh, whose work, like many of you, I'm sure, I've admired for a long time. And the hope here is that we can add some context and some insight to what's been a complicated moment in American history, to say the least. Um, Jill, I, I, you know, as Edwina sort of started laying the groundwork for this, this is a moment in American history where you know, there are 1.1 million Americans who just in the past week alone uh, were tested positive for the coronavirus. 12 million Americans are unemployed. We have a president who, despite losing by about 6 million votes, has not yet conceded. I wonder what you think the world should take away from this extraordinary year in American history. What, what does 2020 tell us and tell the world about America? Uh, well, first, uh, thanks so much. Uh, it's lovely to be here with all of you um, in this distant way. Uh, and Damien, such a treat to have a chance to speak with you. Um, I, I think we still do not know. I think the incredible uncertainty of the moment is its own kind of meta story. I've been really fascinated to see how desperately ordinary Americans are tracking the day, our day-to-day -day experience. I think most of us here in the U.S. have a kind of meta experience of being uh, out of time somehow. I mean, you, open it, you turn on your phone in the morning and you see the, the COVID numbers would be the first thing that you see, you know, the chart that is available and it's going up and up and up right now. It's a terrible uh, crisis, much higher peak than than. Uh, we experienced here in March and April when the coronavirus pandemic began. Um, our daily news stories are uh, still about election numbers and the continuing battle of the Trump campaign in court. Um, you know, we still, not a day goes by that there isn't, you know, yet another story about policing across the country. And those reports, too, are often driven by quantitative reporting. So I think many of us have a sense of maybe more than in any other time in history of living on a timeline mm -hmm. in which, you know, this is the year you were born and this has been your life thus far. And 2020 just is just everything's kind of off a quantitative cliff. Like, so um, where we go next is how we will make sense of where we have been at this moment. But that sort of desperate need to make sense of this moment is really itself its its own weird experience. I, I, as a historian, I have never known a moment in time when people were so deeply conscious of living in a moment in time. Right, or living in a moment in history, I suppose, too. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I think for the perspective from, from Australia and from a lot of parts of the world is that this is a period of accelerated American decline. Um, you know, a lot of Australians I talk to, they look at me with great sadness in their eyes, and they want to know what the hell happened to America. I mean, as I've often said, and I'm sure you've said too, what you're seeing now is the product of a lot of things that preceded this president and lots of other things too. 
Is there a moment when, if in fact this is a period of American decline, when it would have started, or when, what are the factors that have been building leading up to this moment where we're living on this timeline? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, again, I, I think it's a very, it, it's a cuspy moment because we don't know where we're going. I mean, if, if Trump had been reelected, the decline argument would have been easier to make. You know, we are now looking at a possibility of a kind of restoration um, of at least a functioning federal government and a federal government response to the pandemic. Um, you know, people are just clocking off the days on their calendars to that inauguration of Joseph Biden on, on January 20th, 2021. Um, but historians would, I think, generally say that the moment that we're in now really began in 1968, uh, you know, really the course of my lifetime. And it's not, you know, looking at it, you'd say, well, well, there's this tremendous American growth and economic growth and triumph, you know, the end of the Cold War. I mean, we could think about a lot of markers, um, you know, the the go-go 1990s or economically, you can think of uh, national economic growth. But 1968, between 1968 and 1972, marks the beginning of political polarization in the U.S., which had been extremely low from about 1945 to 68 or 1970, extremely low political polarization. We have a two-party system. The parties were almost indistinguishable for most of that period. Uh, and the, the political distance between the extremes of the party was, was, was a small distance. Um, political polarization began rising right around 68, which contributes to decline. I mean, well, this is not in itself a problem, right? We could talk more about why polarization right. is, a, is a contributing factor to decline, but I would argue that it has been. Um, and then income inequality in the U.S. has been on the rise since about 1968, which marked the end of um, the, the expansion of the powers of the federal government that began in the progressive era through the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s and what we call FDR's New Deal, which is, you know, our version of a sort of social welfare program through Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program in the 1960s, which really ended in 68 when Johnson said he wasn't going to run again and Richard Nixon was elected. Um, so, so if you think about that moment about 50, 50 years ago, Income inequality begins to rise. Political polarization begins to rise. And those two factors together account for uh, an enormous amount of political dysfunction in the United States. Um, the growth of, you know, we, we essentially live in a plutocratic society at this point. Um, and increasing dysfunction of the party system. So I, I would say this moment... You know, it's easy to say this moment began in 2016 with Donald Trump, and I am sure from the outside, in many ways, it looks that way, um, partly because of the sparkliness of the Obama years. Um, but I but I think that if we want to think about it in a, in a comprehensive historical way, we begin in 1968. Right. And in terms of some of those factors you mentioned, whether it's inequality or partisanship, I think for a lot of people who are watching the same charts that you are in terms of the coronavirus, there also appears to be this almost militant individualism that has emerged. I mean, do you think that's related to the partisanship and to the inequality, or is that a cultural thing that has also maybe run its course and gone too far as well? Uh, you know, the, 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 that waxes and wanes in the United States. And it, of course, has been a source of great vitality in the United States as well. The, this is a country that has a twinned tradition 
of a kind of uh, quite freewheeling individualism and a tradition of republicanism, you know, of the, of the sense that we, you know, we belong to a community that uh, we take care of one another, that that we, we, we cast our votes in the interest of the public good, uh, that we have a democratic obligation to seek common ground. Those traditions have, have always coexisted. I think it, it is arguable that it is really um, the kind of unchecked individualism begins with Ronald Reagan's presidency in 1981. Um, Reagan and and the new right um, that came to power with Reagan or that helped to bring Reagan to power uh, had um, a a commitment to to, to individualism that was for the sake of deregulating the economic sector and embracing a kind of free market strategy um, that was really just a kind of cockeyed economic harebrained scheme um, that, uh, while I think like earnestly embraced by many people who believe it, turns out to just be very bad economic policy, right? Um, but it, it 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 really snowballed into something broader across the culture. It drew on a, a you know many strands of I think a very healthy individualism that has been a, a, um, a real spur to American ingenuity and innovation and creativity in the arts and in literature and uh, engineering, you know, that, that, that kind of individualism has been a real source, just, just a, a vein, like a mineral vein of vitality in the United States. Um, but it's just kind of a mess now. Um, so we, that too has, has different, the different origins, but what, what's interesting about the kind of 1980 to 2020 era is how unsuccessfully people on the left answered that, right? There's really never been um, a full-throated response to Reagan-era Reagan individualism that said, do you know what? Good, good on you, but here's here are our community interests, and here's why they're not served by you doing what you, you know, you doing you all the time. Um, that the, the, it's the weakness of the liberal and progressive response, I think, that we haven't, as historians, accounted for nearly as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Trump. I think this is partially why people see so much individualism. I mean, he seems to be this, you know, the apex of American individualism, who's literally only out for himself and is pretty blunt about that. Um, do you think that he will actually have been the high point of that sort of toxic individualism? What do you think his legacy will ultimately be? Um, you know, I, I think if if um, if the, our if our democracy can't repair itself, his legacy will have been that he broke America, right? right. <laughs> like that will be kind of on him, right? Like every single thing he did ate away at, or broke the bones of, or sucked the marrow out afterwards of a fundamental institution that holds a country together. And he wouldn't have been able to come to power without most of those things already, you know, being pretty well sprained and weakened. Um, so it's not, it's really not all on Trump, but it kind of, if you just can't know until you see where it goes, right? Like if it breaks, right. then he broke it. I mean, I like if the title of If it's of- fixable, then he didn't break it. I like the title of most marrow-sucking president in American history, so maybe we can start with that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it it, it is interesting. I mean, you know, as you said, this has ended up being a four-year presidency. An eight-year Trump presidency would have been a very different thing. Um, Biden, though, has an enormous challenge. I mean, as you said, a lot of these institutions, a lot of these things were sprained previously. 
what do you think we should expect from him? What's a reasonable expectation for this next administration, given what we've just seen? Yeah, I think it's actually a challenge for Biden that the powers of the presidency have been so wildly expanded. Um, The presidency was never meant to have the kind of power that it now has, both in terms of real power, um, you know, beginning with, you know, the veto power wasn't really part of the presidency. Like we could go way back and look at the accretion of powers that presidents have assumed, you know, ruling by way of executive dictate instead of, you know, suggesting legislation that goes through Congress. Um, But also culturally here, and this is among the reasons Trump got elected in the first place, like Trump became a celebrity in the U.S. in the 1990s during the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal. People remember that when Clinton had an affair with it with it with a young intern. Um, Trump was just known as a playboy who was kind of a sex fiend and and was was amusing because he was such a clown. And he started going on cable news, commenting on Bill Clinton's extramarital affair. Um, The 90s was both an era of tremendous um, fascination with, you know, with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, um, but also with the presidents as rich and famous people. And partly because Reagan's big uh, autobiography came out in that era and um, it's called an American life, but it was like a publishing phenomenon. Somehow the presidency culturally here is just like a much bigger deal than it ever was before. Right. Like, so people think of like, well, what did Obama accomplish? I don't know. What did Congress fail to accomplish? Like the problem with the Obama presidency was that Congress wouldn't do anything. So for Biden, unfortunately, no, again, no one has walked that back and said, you know, the president doesn't actually control the economy. Like you can't take credit for the economy as a president and nor can you really take the blame. But it's kind of it's been an unanswered change, both culturally and in terms of real power. Um, So what I think most Americans won't understand is how difficult it will be for Biden to accomplish anything given the Senate. Um, Even if, even if Biden, uh, there's, there are two seats in our seats in our hundred person Senate that have not yet um, uh, been taken. And we won't know for several more weeks, whether those will be Democrats or Republicans. Um, But, the obstruction of Congress and the inability even of the House of Republicans and Democrats to work together means that, you know, all Joe Biden can really do is propose things and sign stuff that comes to his desk if he agrees with it. Um, well, and he can use be, a lot of executive orders to do what needs to do. Right. I mean, the, the celebrity can use sort a lot of, factor, of executive doors. It adds it adds yeah. a ton of pressure, yeah. but not a whole lot of sort of power and ability to do more than just sign executive orders, I suppose. Right. Right. I mean, and a lot of what he'll do in the first few days is just issue executive orders that undo Trump's executive orders. Trump signed executive orders that undid Obama's executive orders. Obama, from day one, signed executive orders that undid Bush executive orders. You know, that is among the deformities of our politics right now because Congress has been so gridlocked because of party polarization. That's one of the reasons it's responsible for American decline. But one thing that's actually interesting about party polarization that might not be obvious from the outside, when you think about it, conservatives don't want government to do anything, right? Like they want to not do anything, whereas liberals want to pass laws that, you know, provide pandemic aid or uh, provide federal government assistance in the distribution of the vaccine when, you know, God willing, it comes uh, becomes available. 
Conservatives don't want to do anything. Liberals do need to pass laws. So when there's gridlock, it only benefits conservatives. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. it's not like gridlock means nobody gets their way. Gridlock means conservatives get their way. Right. It's interesting, too, because I, going back to your point about the 1990s, I sometimes wonder if the end of the Cold War was the beginning of a period when American democracy didn't need to do anything to show that it was worthwhile, either to the public or the world. You know, so if 1968 was one starting point, do you think that the end of the Cold War could also be a factor in, I mean, democracies all around the world have gotten weaker since then? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the case. I also think that it had provided you know, the Cold War was the enemy that the United States knew. It provided a kind of comfortable, um, uh, you could sort of outsource tribalism, right? Americans could be sort of busy hating communists. Right. Um, when the, when, you know, in 1991, leading conservatives said, oh, well, you know, well, you know, the Cold War isn't really over because now we can just continue this, but against liberals. You know, like we will just take the ideological battle that we've been waging against communism and use it internally, domestically. Instead of having to, you know, fight a foreign adversary ideologically, we will fight our own battles domestically with that same fervor. And so the kind of drumming for war against liberals, like this was the 1990s in the U.S., you know, we talk about the culture wars and the history wars, I don't know, everything was at war with itself. And it um, a lot of the amping up of, uh, in the, the extension of that polarization came about in the 1990s. Um, it came about over these, you know, the issues of guns and abortion, which had been politicized beginning in the 1970s, but became hyper-politicized in the 90s. And, you know, I, argue, I have argued that, you know, what happens is sort of polarization is built is built by hand, you know, phone calls, postcards, knocking on doors. But, you know, with the opening of the internet and then with social media, it's automated. We, you know, we basically have built an automated polarization machine. And so even people who would like now to stop that machine can't, you know, it's kind of, it's on autopilot. Like you can't, there's, there's no, there's no pilot left in the plane and the things on autopilot is heading into a mountain and nobody can do anything about it. That's how our politics feels. Right. And, and that's what Biden's big challenge is, right? Is he's someone who's trying to say, hey, we're not fighting each other. We're fighting the virus. But I keep wondering if that, you know, how many Facebook news feeds is that even going to get to show up in? You know, I mean, how do you get back from that cycle of polarization? Yeah. And are there any models from history that we might be able to look to for examples? Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough challenge. I think that, um, you know, I'm not the hugest Biden fan, but I think he's been incredibly disciplined about not taking the bait, you know, even with the just rank insanity, just truly crazy, just I'm wondering you know, which example you're thinking crazy. of. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the... I'm thinking of the contesting of the election, oh, right. you know, and the tweeting, you know, and just Biden is just like, you know what, I'm I'm putting together my cabinet. Right. Like, thanks for electing me, America. Let's build a new country. Um, he's been really disciplined about that. And I, and I think his whole team has been disciplined about that, which I think is a good sign. But how you undo it when um, when you have Congress that is is 
utterly incapable of acting um, and is likely to be incapable of acting in, under the new administration. And then you have this automated social media environment uh, where, you know, what are the, what do you do to undo that is, is not clear. I mean, I think there's some clever people could think about some, some interesting ways of, of, of undoing some of that. I think that he will earn an enormous amount of goodwill if he oversees <clears throat> and his administration oversees an effective rollout of the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, it's um, interesting because I think you know, compet is, is competence sexy enough to work, right? I mean, that's a little bit of what he's testing. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it will get him pretty far. Um, so I would be cautiously optimistic that. Um, as terrible as the public health situation is, and as tragic as it is, especially thinking of the numbers of people who will die before that vaccine is available, um, and the numbers of people who have died, you know, on top of, you know, given the malfeasance and basically criminal negligence of the Trump administration, um, I, I think it is a real opportunity for Biden to say, this is a thing that government does and is like we, you know, this is why we have a federal government and this, these are the kinds of actions that we can do well and, and have done well. And I, I think that could earn him a tremendous amount of goodwill. Um, so if that goes well, which, you know, for a thousand reasons it needs to, I, I, I think it's possible he could have a, a reasonably quiet four years um, and that's that's the most anybody could ask. I think that, right. you know, demands that he uh, restructure the economy, solve racial injustice, reform the criminal justice system, and uh, end climate change. He's not going to do those. He's not going to do those things. If he could stop those things from getting worse, that would be a triumph. Right. I mean, I wonder, so that's sort of at the top-down presidential level. Um, there's also a question of kind of what needs to be done at the American community, everyone where they live level. You know, you've written some interesting things about how in the 1930s there were a lot of people who, you know, held forums about democracy, who, who somehow got engaged with democracy in a different way. Do you see any of that happening, or what, what would you think could happen at that grassroots level that needs to happen to bolster a, a sort of revival of democracy, if that could happen? Yeah, I think uh, I think the 30s is the best example, partly because radio we forget and think of radio has, you know, in maybe in this sort of twee way. But but radio was was explosive with regard to the um, uh, proliferation of propaganda. Of course, like radio is is, is essentially necessary to um, to the to the Third Reich in Germany. Um, and in the U.S., there were a lot of demagogues on the radio. There, there was a, a lot of calls to fascism that you could hear. You turn on the radio in the United States the first national form of communication you know houses were wired even in the rural countryside you know it was a big part of FDR's administration to make sure that the rural parts of the country had electricity and with electricity they got radios um, and uh, Americans began to fear that as democracies were falling all over the world, that American democracy was equally fragile. The incredible suffering of the Great Depression suggested to some people, <clears throat> certainly to, to, to strong men in weak democracies in Europe, that the only solution was uh, to take the powers of a dictator. The only solution to the dire economic situation, you know, where you're going to have like a Congress that's going to waffle and be difficult. Uh, well, you know, you just take on the dictatorial, you know, just, just to dissolve parliament or your legislature. 
um, take control and, and have a state-run economy, um, whether that brings, you know, either that's fascist or that's communist. And FDR's big struggle when he took office on March 4th, 1933, was was to, to halt the suffering without destroying democracy, right? Like to, to, to undertake strong economic policies for recovery and relief without you know, without recourse to bypassing Congress. And he used the radio to do that. I mean, he, you know, he, he spoke directly to the American people and said, look, I got to propose these things and they're going to be crazy. Like, first of all, I got to close all the banks tomorrow. Like, so don't worry. Cause I'm going to open them back up. We got to close. Like he had this way of using radio effectively in that way. But then in this bigger cultural way, as you suggest, given the, the divide among Americans, there were all kinds of interesting radio experiments that were about, trying to hold a national community together or even local communities where there were great political differences um, through, uh, there were, for instance, this, there was a radio show called The Town Meeting of the Air where um, uh, in a a big lecture hall in the big city, a stage would be filled with, you know, four speakers on, you say the issue was like, should the United States have national health insurance? Big issue in the 1930s. They'd put it on stage, like someone who said yes, someone who said, you know, a communist who, you know, just objected to the whole idea of American capitalism, a fascist who had some other view. And they would have a big debate. And Americans would gather in organized ways, like in their schools or at work, and listen to those debates and then continue them afterward. Um, so the whole idea of listening to the radio debate was to hear a range of views and then continue that work of deliberation. So there were non-radio versions of these public forums as well. And I think what it was really useful for was reminding people, because it's easy to forget in a democracy, that democracy consists of, you know, representation. You elect people to, 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 to represent your interests. Participation, which is the work of basically doing that electing, and deliberation, right? And the deliberation is the thing we forget about. Um, you know, you don't just go vote for somebody to represent. You actually are supposed to deliberate with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with parents on the playground. You're supposed to have reasoned conversations and political arguments with people. That's part of an ob- your obligation as a citizen in a democracy. And the forum for doing that in the 30s seemed to have gone away. So people artificially created it. Well, one thing they did was use local schools at night. So, you know, we got all these school buildings. Towns would say, we've got all these school buildings. We only use them during the day. At night, let's have political deliberations. We'll have these little conventions. And they would hold conventions about, you know, should the Supreme Court have more power? How, you know, wish just to have them. Like, not for, there was no decision to be made. There was no ballot measure. There's no vote just to say, let's, we probably disagree about these things. Let's hear each other out. And, you know, and radio was a place to do that too, but now we have our only forum, certainly in the pandemic, for most of those things. I mean, a lot of people in that room are, you know, you guys can deliberate after I've gone, um, but we can't do that here. We cannot gather. And so the only gathering for deliberation is online. And it's, you know, it, it, that's where the marrow is being sucked out of everybody's bones. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and that's the thing I wonder about, too, is what I was also wondering as I was reading about the 30s is, you know, how did they get 
past deliberation to some kind of reconciliation. Maybe it was those face-to-face -face meetings. I mean, that's what the WPA and a lot of the other things that were built in the 30s, it was about that human interaction. So I wonder if when the pandemic goes away, if there are vaccines, if Americans are gonna crave that kind of personal one-on-one -on -one deliberation, or they're gonna be so divided that they can barely even look each other in the face. I don't know, do you have, I'm sure you don't have it, that's not an easy question, but where do you think things are heading? Do you sense a desire for connection across these divides and personal connection, or does it just feel like everyone is angrier than ever and separate forever? You know, I, I absolutely sense the deep human craving, you know, physical need for contact and, you know, human companionship that people are just profoundly lonely. Like, you watch TV, like, even just, I was you know, logging into this and seeing people sitting in, in a room together, like there, I, it's like shocking to see, um, you know, you watch, you watch TV at night and people are in a restaurant and you're like, Oh no, they're sitting too close together. They don't have masks. Like you, everybody's just like terrified. Like it's, it's just terrified. Like you can't, it's scary. It's very scary here. So, um, yes, the, you know, desperate human interest in, being in a crowd is, is really very profound, but yeah, I, I, but the second part of that is people are just furious at one another. So, you know, yes, I want to see people, but only the people I already agree with it, you know, like that. I think there is a lot of that. There's, there's a lot of, you know, there are very open-hearted, goodwill people who will say, I really want to figure out how to understand people that I disagree with. Um, does it, but does it take, does there it, isn't really a forum for them to do that. Yeah. I was going to say, does it take practice? Do Americans need to relearn how to deliberate? Is that sort of one of the fundamental things that Biden needs to figure out a way to do, is help Americans learn how to deliberate again? You know, honestly, I got to say, the Senate doesn't even deliberate, right? Like, our, you know, the, it's our one deliberative body, right? Like, if you've probably covered the Senate, like, I, I, I actually think, like, it isn't, Biden, it's not between Biden and like, you know, mil hundreds of millions of people. It's like, okay, people on CNN on a panel should stop basically calling each other assholes and actually have a deliberation about something. We're like reasonable people. Like people that are, you're, you're being paid to go on CNN. Don't act like an idiot. You know, don't just act like a clown. Like maybe reveal what it would be to act like a citizen and, to, and just, not that everybody is terrible on, I'm just, picking CNN randomly, but like, what about media organizations that are themselves offering an opportunity to see a panel of people who disagree with one another, disagree? What about those organizations? So why are those editorial rooms not people sitting around saying, you know what, the country's really screwed up right now. We're probably contributing to it. Okay, I know we've contributed to it. How could we contribute to a remedy? Or, you know, why doesn't the Senate, instead of, you know, how the Senate works is, no one's ever in the Senate. They don't have to ever go in there except to go on C-SPAN, which is our like Senate TV, and read a speech that they didn't even write and that they've reading for the first time out loud to a camera and then go back and, you know, raise money in their office. Like, why don't, why doesn't the Senate say, you know what we should, we should really go back to deliberate. <laughs> I just actually, I don't think it falls to, you know, my aunt and my cousin to figure out how to talk better together over the dinner table. When if they're going to put on the TV or watch C-SPAN and watch this, like, can't people who have a position whose job it is to deliberate do a better job so that they can be better models for everyone else? Because the people, the only people who are really doing that job 
our school teachers, public school teachers who have a huge commitment to civic education, to getting kids in a room. I mean, you know, starting a nursery school, <laughs> kids are like, let's make a rule for how we'll conduct ourselves here in our nursery school. And, you know, the, 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 you, you, you go to school all day and you're taught how to behave decently to one another. And then every other part of American life involves people being horrible to one another. So, well, you know, school teachers should get all the credit and everybody else should model their behavior after school teachers. <laughs> Very nice. And they should open them up again at night, possibly, too. You know, why not expand it and get returned yeah. in the 30s? <laughs> um, I'm curious. I mean, yeah, right. you, just, you just laid out, you know, a whole bunch of the things that clearly drive you crazy. Um, but I'm curious, you know, when, when you do wake up at four in the morning and you think about the country and the world, and I'll get to the hopeful bit in a, in a second, but first, like, what are, your, what are your deepest fears for American democracy and for the world? Like, what are the things that keep you up at night um, most? Well, I think it's maybe a little bit different for the world, but um, I, I am kept up a lot at night by, uh, in the United States, our failure to regulate or think critically about social media. Um, it has, there is not an upside. There's not an upside. Um, it has destroyed lives. Uh, it has destroyed communities, political communities, cultural communities. It has destroyed entire industries, newspapers, local television stations. Uh, it has demeaned public discourse. Like I, I uh, that we have stood idly by for that drives me crazy. That said, um, we stood idly by while fossil fuels companies have, you know, have have hired advertising agencies to tell us bogus, crazy lies for a half century now, and we should drive our cars and you know do you know. Do, buy what we're going to buy the stuff we're going to buy so um i that stuff keeps me up a lot yeah it's interesting that you mentioned social media is there an element of that that you think government could solve or you know is there anything from the past i mean i can't think of an of i used to cover technology and i can't think of a historical analogy to what's happening now myself but is there anything i don't know what would you do yeah, well, I mean, Facebook should be dismantled. I mean, for one thing, like just as an antitrust issue, um, so should Google, so should Amazon. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we there's the issue in the U.S. with regard to our uh, telecommunications laws that um, social media companies are not considered publishers, so they're not liable for the, what they publish. Um, and yet they have destroyed publishers all over the country. They act as a publisher, um, and, uh, and they've monopolized the publishing industry, right? So, uh, con you know, I, and these companies should be dismantled. And if there were more, many, many more platforms, and if they, um, you know, acted in certain ways, they had to follow a different code of rules. I don't have, like, I'm, you know, it's not my area of expertise. Like, I'm not a master of the ethics of, 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 of business reform. Um, just as a citizen, I, I, the, 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 the malign consequences of uh, having been, you know, willfully um, taken advantage of by an entire sector of the economy, you know, I, there, I think the fossil fuel analogy is, is pretty uh, apt. Um, the, the deviousness of, of those companies is... Like the idea that somehow, oh, because Mark Zuckerberg looks like a, 
a, a, a, a confused child, we should be sympathetic with him. I mean, he's a crazy megalomaniac. Like, we should not be sympathetic. <laughs> right. And, uh, I mean, I'll, well, I'm sure he'll see this message, so I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I'm, it's interesting, though, that you bring up the big companies because there is a history of trust busting in the United States. There, is, there, there have been moments when the United States said, okay, this is capitalism run amok, it's too much, we can fix this. Does that give you any hope that this is something that the United States has been able to do before, something we could do again? Yeah, I mean, you know, for for people that, you know, aren't familiar with that story, that piece of American history, the progressive era about a century ago, a little more than a century ago, brought together uh, our two major political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, around a series of progressive era reforms that included trust busting, but not only trust busting, um, and was responsible for um, uh, providing a remedy for the wild income inequality um, of the 1890s and the beginnings of the beginning of the 20th century, um, we have now gone back to that level of income inequality. Uh, so we've recreated the conditions that the progressive era solved for. So you know, I, it, it was an extraordinary era of reform. It had its own problems. What's different about the progressive era from our moment? And our liberals in the U.S. call themselves progressives in some sense, in homage to that moment, but our progressives are, are, are not uh, a bipartisan group, right? They're, they're people in the Democratic Party. And the other thing that's different is that the progressive movement in the United States emerged out of a populist movement and just basically took its agenda. So, you know, starting in the 1860s, 1870s, farmers and wage workers, factory workers joined together to create what became the People's Party. They were fighting for a, a, a progressive federal income tax. They were fighting for trust busting. They were fighting to end, you know, corporate personhood, treating corporations legally as persons. They were fighting for women's suffrage. They were fighting for labor reform. And, you know, they were much demeaned by elites. They're poor farmers and, and poor workers, but elites also agreed with all of their policy proposals and made them their own. And so it transformed American politics and the American economy. So 19th century populism in the U.S. was populism of the of the left. Um, as it was in much of the world, that's where socialism comes from, right? Um, but populism in the United States and around the world now is, comes comes from the right. So um, it's it's not it's not providing ammunition and energy for a progressive reform. It's going in the other direction from progressive reform. That's why I'm less convinced that we, you know, we'll get there um, right now. Gotcha. Okay, that's helpful. A little bit more pessimism. I'm going to get to hope in a second. Um, but just to remind you all, it's time to throw in some more questions. I've got a bunch of really good ones that we'll ask Jill in just a second that have come through. But uh, if you have a question, now's the time to ask. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you before we go to questions, Jill, is, you know, the opposite of what keeps you up at night. What are the things as you look at the United States that gives you hope, that gives you a sense that, okay, hey, there's a way and there's a path forward and we're going to get out of this? What are the things that make you smile as opposed to keep you up at night? Um. <laughs> that's, a harder, that's a harder question. Um, oh, even that's a sad thing, that it's such a hard question. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I mean, I... Um, my students... You know, I I, um, I teach a class where 
uh, it's all kind of all of American history in one semester and they have to deliberate each week because I'm trying to cultivate deliberation. Um, and they, they're, they haven't given up and their whole lives have been this in a way, you know, um, they don't have really a before, not just a before the pandemic, but, you know, a before this, this, this era uh, of, if not American decline, American um, aimlessness, I think would be a, a, a fair characterization of, of the United States um, since 2000, you know, with the exception of the global war on terror, which I think is, has you know there's 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 much to criticize there but it was its own sort of weird aim i guess um so yeah i think that i think that young people have um a, a much better sense of what the consequences are when an entire generation screws up um and in in the u.s it's really you know damien i'm guessing like it's our generation that screwed up right um we are the ones that came of age in the kind of reagan me decade the go-go 90s and 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 kind of watched the house burn down and said well it's okay i'm doing fine um and that that's destroying the country now so um they know that <laughs> and uh they have they have a i think they have a keen sense of obligation uh it shouldn't come to them it's not it shouldn't it, it, it shouldn't fall to them that shouldn't be something a whole generation inherits but in the way that Actually, David Gergen, the um, uh, very prominent uh, uh, presidential aide and um, White House commentator, visited my class this week, and he said something that I, I agreed with. He said, you know, what, um, what was responsible for the great presidencies of the middle decades of the 20th century was the humbling that, and the suffering that all of those presidents experienced during the Second World War. Um, the sense of the necessity of sacrifice to stop something evil in the world um, and the cost of, 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 of that and the difficulty of that um, and the courage that it took to go out, you know, and fight in that war. And um, he said, you know, he thought that young people today here where, where there is a tremendous amount of suffering that I think is probably invisible, um, that, that that kind of hardening and morally clarifying experience is the experience that these young people are having. Interesting. That actually segues pretty well into the questions. Um, there are a bunch of questions about individualism and a bunch of questions about electoral college stuff. We'll start with the individualism stuff. To your point, um, one question from Isabel is, it seems that Americans value the concept of freedom above collective good. Do you agree? Um, you know, it, I think some Americans do. I suspect that you would see if you did a public opinion survey and you asked fairly coded questions, you would find that that is essentially a partisan divide. I don't think I, I, and I think that's how Americans think of themselves. Right. That on the right, you know, the people value freedom and, and therefore I will not wear a mask because it's, it's I'm free to choose. Um, and that on the left, people say, well, but I believe in the public good and that's why I'm wearing a mask. On the other hand, I'm fairly cynical about that. I think both sides are very proud of those labels. Um, people on the right would be very proud to say they believe in freedom. People on the left, very proud to say they believe in the common good. And I think they're kind of both lying. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I think right. um, I think it's a label that that is more satisfying than true. Um, and at the end of the day, like, look at a thousand things about those people's lives. And of course, they both value the common good. 
and free, you know, and freedom. Um, it's really um, the marketing of that idea to people that you should, oh, here's a way you should sort yourself. You believe in freedom because you are red, you know, you, you, you live in a red state and you, you should know you believe in the common good because you live in a blue state. And also, here's what you think must think about guns. And here's what you must think about abortion. Here's what you must think about the Supreme Court. And here's what you must think. And it's just, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's really as much about micro-targeted political advertising as a genuine political sentiment, in my view. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I wonder, too, if it's just that it's, it, the framing is slightly off. It's not just which one do you value more, but which one do you live out in your life? And to your point, maybe Americans, our generation and others included, haven't done enough for the collective good and act, action, right? Not just in thought and argument. Um, moving on from there, another question is about how to sort of come back from that and why, why the left in particular has not done a good job of countering um, some of this partisanship. Why has an apparently more cohesive left failed so fundamentally to compete with a coalition of Tea Party nationalism, neocon Christians, and the moderate right? And related to that is another question about, well, isn't this just all about overlooking the 70 million Americans who voted for Trump? So what's the left gotten wrong in, in, you know, in, the, in contrast with that clear, obvious support for Trump? Yeah. Um, you know, what the left got, got wrong and I think continues to get wrong is a lot. Um, I thought when Hillary Clinton lost to Trump in 2016, um, in my naive way, I thought it was just because she's a terrible candidate. Um, I thought she was a terrible candidate. Shouldn't have got, I wish she didn't get the nomination. Um, I thought she was a terrible campaigner. She's one of the most hated politicians in American life. Like why the Democratic Party thought, you know, to put her forward, I, I just drove me bonkers. Um, and she didn't campaign in um, places that she lost. So, um, but 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 Biden, while he did much better, um, didn't do as well as you'd think if that was the case, right? If the problem against Trump in 2016 was just Hillary Clinton, then Biden would have done much better than he did, although he did extremely well. Um, I think that the left, um, all the most of the things that the right accuses the left of have 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 a fair amount of truth to it, right? Um, the incredible elitism of the left, um, the failure to see uh, uh, the lives of rural Americans at all, like to even notice them, to be there, to live there, um, to think about that kind of suffering, um, the fairly significant contempt um, for fellow Americans. Um, you know, the, the, even, you know, the journalistic expose, Damien, in, you know, in your field that, you know, where reporters would, you know, fly out somewhere, rent a car and drive out, you know, you know, it's, it's a, it's a form of journalism that has its own, it's called a Trump safari, right? Like where you just, these horrible stories where reporters would go out looking for some, Hey, did you vote for Trump? Why? Who the hell are you? And what crazy thing do you think? Like, I mean, it, it's, it's horrible. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I can think of instances where I felt like I was doing that. And I, so I think there's a, there's a lot of blame to go around about, about that and that the kind of geographical sorting has had real consequences when um, uh, when people in the in the in the in the press and in the academy have more distant have lives that have grown distant from those places. So I think there I think there's there, there's a, there's a real critique and I think um, I myself have been really frustrated that the um, parts of the left that I think were responsible for what happened in 2016 
haven't really learned that lesson. And I don't think they, they certainly haven't learned it through the results of the 2020 election. So I think there's actually a lot of moral reckoning that, um, that needed to happen on the left that, that still hasn't happened, right? Instead, the left is much more comfortable saying, just don't understand the Trump voter. I just don't understand that. I go, well, why? Why don't you understand that? Like what, what, um, yeah, that, I mean, has to, that, that has to happen. It seems, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the geographical sorting. Um, some of the other questions are related to the electoral college too, because you know, on one hand, we've talked about social media as a factor that separates and divides, but the way the electoral system works, in addition to the geographical sorting, which for those who don't know, most Americans are more likely to, to, and more likely now than before, to live in districts that are kind of super landslide districts where everyone or the vast majority vote for the same presidential candidate. And this has increased significantly since the 1990s. Um, but what can be done to improve the electoral system is a series of questions. Can 2020 change the US electoral system for the better? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a kind of omnibus Voting Rights Act package that is more or less on the table. There's a lot of talk here, you know, calling it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in honor of John Lewis, who died this year, um, you know, that would uh, that would address some of the, the voting issues. Um, but I think that some of the things that some of the received truths on the left have been revealed to be just flat out wrong, right? Uh, it was always the case that the left always said a voter tur vote, high voter turnout will only benefit us. Uh, we've had the highest voter turnout in this election in basically a century. Um, you know, I mean, you know, Biden won, but Democrats lost tons of seats. Um, it, 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 high voter turnout did not square, you know, that, that, that turns out to be wrong. Um, a lot of people who looked at voting reform have wanted to nationalize election laws. Um, here, they run, you know, 50 states and and districts uh, in District of Columbia with different voting rules in different places. Different the ballots look different. The machines used are different. The, you know, the only thing that really is the same is the election day itself, which was established in 1845. Before that, everybody voted on different days. So. Um, but it's kind of clear with Trump's attempt to interfere with the election that if the if we had a national system that was run by the federal government, that would have been pretty bad this time around. So I think some of the objectives um, turn out. Uh, I think people learned a lot from this election, and I think um, my colleague Daniel Allen at Harvard had a, had a piece in the Washington Post this week, and she said, which she said, here's an upside of this election. It was a very good civics lesson. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people who didn't understand really how elections work yeah, right. learned a lot about how elections work. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, too, about just the election workers themselves. If there are any sort of heroes of this election, it's probably those people at that very local level who spent hours and hours counting and didn't, didn't buckle to any pressure, right? I mean, so that, maybe that's a cause for hope. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, a, there, you know, there, there's, there's enormous courage day-to-day um, uh, um, yeah, all across the country. I mean, I was shouting out school teachers for 
really good reasons, but you know, the people, people are putting their lives on the line every day to treat people who uh, have COVID. People have really went and counted votes in crowded rooms at a danger to their own health in order to make sure that votes were counted. Like there, there is a lot that we will look back on and be aghast at and um, is so grateful for. Um, related to that, I mean, this is sort of a question, I think this is a question that a lot of Australians feel is looking at it from afar, and this is the one that has the most upvotes. On a scale of one to 10, what is America's fear level pertaining to civil and democratic breakdown? Uh, I think it's pretty high. Um, this is why I wrote the essay about the 1930s. In the 1930s, you really couldn't crack open a magazine or turn on the radio without someone saying, does democracy have a future? What is the future of democracy? How shall we save democracy? And it's exactly like that now. Like you can't turn on the radio or open up the newspaper or, you know, pull a magazine out of your mailbox without it. Just the whole conversation is, what is the future of democracy? So I, you know, I, I, I think it's very, um, very much on people's minds. Um, there are a lot of really good proposals that are out, suggestions that have been made. I think, though, um, if history is any guide, mm -hmm. if, you know, Biden is inaugurated, we rolled, you know, he's able to roll, we're able to roll out a vaccine in early spring, slowly and effectively. People are so exhausted of examining the entire nature of our federal government and our system of local government and our healthcare system and dealing with remote schooling. Everyone's just gone to want to say, let's not think about the electoral college right now. Let's not think about democratic reform. Let's not think about how do we talk to our neighbors. Let's just, I just, I just want to have friends over for dinner and go to a movie. Like I think the desire to just, if we could get back to normal pandemic wise, the desire to just take all the stuff that people are super worried about and, and really fearful of, including, you know, civil unrest. Um, I think a lot of that stuff, people are just going to want to put to one side. And I would say, I, I sadly, very, very sadly would say, I think that a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, energy, incredible energy and enthusiasm and support, really widespread bipartisan support um, was deep and profound. But I also think that weirdly, there's a certain population in the United States that was really supportive of that movement, but the desire, the kind of return to normalcy craving is in some ways gonna interfere with, with it's gonna slow some of that momentum going forward, would be a fear that I have. Uh, it's interesting, I mean, that sort of speaks to what gets lost by Americans' desire just to get back to normal. <laughs> um, and just how exhausting this moment has been. There are a few questions around that in relation to, to foreign policy, but I'm gonna broaden it. I mean, one of these questions is, you know, Trump put on a, a trade offensive against China, which no other US president dare try. How do you think Biden will shape US-China trade relations in, in his term? That's a very particular question, but I would like to just broaden it to both with, with foreign policy and with domestic policy. This may be the last question we have time for. What's lost by what America has just gone through for the past four years? The energy that's been sapped, all that marrow sucking from the president in the White House. What are the missed opportunities that we may never get back again? How will this really have changed America over the long term? Um, well, I mean, just sort of quickly with regard to China, I think that Biden will, will have a very different policy, you know, than, and posture than Obama did, and it, in some ways will be closer to Trump's, honestly. 
Um, but you know, I, I think that there's a there's a you know the Biden administration talks about a reset, right? They 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 want to take those um, foreign policy and domestic policy positions not back to you know 2012 and Obama's second term, you know, but back to 2016 and kind of rethink. But but think about where things have gone since then. Um, I do think there's been a tremendous loss. Um, I mean, the loss of life is just incredible, right? And um, the, and the, the number of people out of work, people who have lost their homes, um, the, the, it's a tremendous setback for the whole of the country. Um, what will be necessary to go forward is for everyone to sense, even people who haven't lost a loved one or their job or their home, um, that to, to recognize that it's still a loss for, for everyone, um, that it is that we are kind of all in this together. I think the, the gain is in some ways, weirdly, the sense that, um, that, that America is not immune, not only not immune, obviously, to this um, disease, but not immune to the perils of, of, of reaction um, to the rise of, of, of essentially a fascist national leader. Um, I think that sense of the fragility of our union, the fragility of our form of government, maybe the shallowness of many Americans' commitment to the ideals on which the nation was founded, um, can only lead to a very impassioned call for renewal and for rebuilding. Whether that call can be realized and met, I do not know, no one does know. Um, but I think that that sense of being chastened um, by mm -hmm. this experience is is something that that we all share. Humility, humility is something that you don't often hear is a word to describe Americans. Last question for you is: within, in addition to humility, as you sort of look forward to where this is all heading for America, what are some of the other characteristics that you could think? could be the rebuilding of American patriotism, American sense of unity. You know, what are five characteristics or words that you would love to see as a part of America's future? Um, I think that the United States really does have uh, a tremendous capacity for ingenuity and could um, assume a real leadership role um, in terms of innovation with regard to climate change, which would be something that people would be across the country would be proud of. Um, 2020 at the very beginning of the year was going to be the year when no one could any longer deny that the climate was changing. And that does seem to have been the case. It's just that then people instead denied that we were engaged, experiencing a pandemic. But I do think like pandemic begins to recede, um, the opportunity for Americans to kind of step up and say, we have, we have a particular obligation to lead here. Um, uh, because we bear a particular burden of responsibility here. I think that 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 could be an incredible, you know, we haven't had, you know, this moonshot or whatever of the 1960s, the John F. Kennedy administration's, you know, plan to go to the moon, just, you know, win the Cold War in space, whatever, you know, a little, a little crazy. But this is a kind of shot that the, the, these things can be done, right? Like they, they're, they're, there are technologies that can be developed. There are programs that can be initiated. Um, that's what I would most like to see America do um, for the world and, and for the United States. Very good. Well, with that, Jill, thank you very much. If everyone could just give Jill a, a round of applause for her insight. Always helpful. And thank you. And thank you to all of you for your smart questions and your attendance.
in a theater that I know Jill would love to have been in, especially given the limits there. Thank you again, Jill. It was a pleasure. Thank you.